following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Acts chapter 23 with me. We've been on quite a journey now, uh, walking through the book of Acts, and uh, we're winding it down. There are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and so we'll be done here, Lord willing, uh, just before Easter. And if you haven't been with us for this whole series, here's kind of what we've seen. Um, The power of God on display through His people, through the church. Uh, God's power has been on display through the church. And so uh, last week we looked, um, Pastor Mark helped us look through Uh, Paul's testimony uh, before the Jews, and so we saw the power of personal testimony. And uh, and today, we're going to look at one specific theme. So uh, in the book of Acts, there are several kind of mini themes that are carried throughout, but one of the themes that you see over and over and over again in the book of Acts is the providence of God. What do I mean by that? What is the providence of God? The providence of God, just a brief definition, is God's present active involvement in our lives, to bring about his purposes in our lives and in the world. So God is present and active in our lives, in everyone's life, bringing about his purposes for us and for his world. And I know that in an age where there is war and there is famine and there's hardship, it's hard to understand or believe that God could be uh, working and present and active in all of those situations. And yet we have, the scripture is replete with these uh, passages that show us over and over and over again that God is at work providentially uh, to bring about his purposes. Now, I'm sure if you were to think back on your life, you would, you would find examples or stories of in- chance encounters, right? Times when the people you met or circumstances that happened that at the time seemed very normal, uh, very sort of ordinary, maybe even insignificant. But when you think back on them, When you reflect on them, you see a sovereign and divine thread sort of woven through all those circumstances and events of your life. I'll give you two very briefly. Uh, This past week, the 28th of February, was the 24th anniversary of my first date with Christina. I'm dating myself. I realize we were 17 when we met. Um, But my wife, her family, just so happened to uh, her mom retired from the Marine Corps. They just so happened to move to Asheville. Her dad by that time was a high school teacher who just so happened to get a job at the high school that I attended, even though they lived in a different district. And while she was building her calendar, her schedule for uh, the upcoming school year, she just so happened to meet Miss Allen, who was one of the most popular teachers And everybody wanted to be her TA, and it was very political, and uh, she just gave it to my wife, just gave it to her, so without knowing anything. So she just so happened to be the TA for my class. And our teacher also had me a little bit crazy, and just so happened to think that we would make a cute couple. And so interrupted Christina's dad's classroom while he was teaching, like knocked on the door, interrupted the class, and said, hey, I need your number. And he goes, why? And she goes, he writes it down, gives it to her. What's this for? I have a student who wants to call your daughter. (laughs) And 24 years later, we're still together, right? I mean, it's the providence of God in that moment. Fast forward to 2006. Uh, I happened to see an advertisement for a church planting conference happening in Atlanta. 
I go to Atlanta. I happen to sit on a row, and another guy happens to sit right next to me on that same row. There's probably 150 people at this thing. Uh, We get to talking during a break. I ask him where he's from, and he says, I live in Greenville, South Carolina, but I'm about to move to this town called Asheville, North Carolina, to plant a church. And I said, dude, that's where I live. (laughs) I was 26, okay? I I spoke in dude language. So we, we met each other. Turns out our vision for what a church in Asheville could be was almost identical, uh, and, and we ended up planting Missio Day Church together 15 years ago, right? Now, those are, those are positive moments, okay? Uh, but I want you to know the providence of God works through both blessing and hardship. The providence of God is at work through both um, pleasure and pain. And so we're going to see a mixture of that this morning as we look here uh, at Acts chapter... I'm going to start really in chapter 22, but we're going to look at chapters 22 uh, and 23 this morning. So those events, you could say, are chance... Uh, or you could say they are the sovereign, gracious, invisible hand of God bringing about his purposes. Acts 1.8 is our mission. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the Lord is accomplishing his purpose page by page in our lives and through the book of Acts. So uh, if you'll join me, uh, let me pray for us right now. And then we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 22 starting in verse 21, and we'll just read a chunk and talk about it uh, as we go through, because we have quite a bit to cover, and I don't want to keep you here till lunch, okay? So let's pray, and then we'll start uh, in Acts chapter 22. Father, I thank you so much for these beautiful people and for the opportunity to share the word of God with them. Uh, Lord, we come humbly before you, and uh, we ask for you to do what only you can do in this place. Uh, By your spirit, through your word, would you penetrate even the stoniest of hearts this morning, would you flood us with your grace? Would you help us to see the beauty and the glory of our sovereign God? And would we cling to Jesus above all else? Holy Spirit, I, I plead with you right now to strengthen and empower me as I preach this word that it may glorify you and edify these people. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 22, and uh, we'll start here in 21. So just to give you context, Paul is sharing his story about how he has come to faith in Christ and what Jesus was leading him towards. And so in verse 21, it says, uh, and he, that's Jesus, said to me, that's Paul. So, and Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. That's the the, the Jews in the audience. Then at this word, they raised their voices and, and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. 
Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. And if you're a note taker, you could just write this down. The hand of God. Uh, My first point is about the hand of God. So if you'll remember, Paul had come to Jerusalem of his own accord. He felt compelled by the Spirit that he was to go to Jerusalem. And there he met with the elders of the church at Jerusalem, including James, the brother of Jesus. And together they celebrated the work of God among them. As all his missionary journeys and how Gentiles were brought into the fold and all that kind of thing. But due to rumors that were swirling in that time, in that place, about Paul and his teaching, he decided to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. Now, Paul knew that in Christ he was free. He was not obligated to keep any more of the Jewish law because Jesus had fulfilled all of it in his place. And yet, for the sake of love and unity, he decides to go and to offer this sacrifice and to pay these temple dues on, on, on behalf of a, a few other men who are there. And his act of humble service completely blows up in his face. The Jews who are there, they see him, they attack him, they beat him, they arrest him. And here's the thing. He is accused of teaching against the Jewish law, which he did not do. And he's accused of defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles into it, which would have been a big deal. And Paul also did not do that. It was an assumption on their part. And so with permission of the Roman officials, Paul addresses this crowd in Hebrew as a Jew to Jews. And what he's doing is he's, he's speaking to them and he- helping them understand his story of conversion, how God had brought him from a persecutor of the church to be a pastor uh, of the church of Jesus Christ. And they're listening, and the text says that they're with him. Up to that word, they were, they were listening. They were engaged with him. But as soon as he mentioned that God had sent him to the Gentiles, they lost it. Okay? You have to understand that the Jews and the Gentiles at this time were at a heightened state of... of um, aggravation with each other. The Jews disdained the Gentiles for being unclean people. And the Gentiles resented the Jews for hating them. And so there was this tension. It was like the way, I guess, Putin feels about the Ukrainians. Like he ju- there's just this heightened state. And, and later on, there actually will be a, a Jew and Gentile war. Okay? I mean, this is how bad it is at that time. So for the Jews who had not met Jesus, to hear that God would want Gentiles included was anathema. And so there's a second riot. There's so much raging and screaming and confusion that this Roman tribune, actually, he can't get any straight answers. So he pulls Paul into the barracks, and he's determined to get to the bottom of the issue. And so they decide what they're going to do is they're going to flog Paul. This is the same torture that Jesus endured. It's a leather whip. Uh, At the ends of the leather whip are braided in uh, bits of bone and glass and metal. And just, I mean, it will literally... uh, pulverize and and tear apart the flesh of the back. This is a big deal. And so they're tying him up and they think what they're going to do is they're going to whip him, flog him, and get him to confess whatever it is that he did that made these Jews so mad. And so as the whip is lifted into the air and they're about to strike him, I mean, he's already tied up, his back exposed, they're about to whip him, and he goes, uh, hey, is it lawful to whip a Roman citizen? And everything changes in that moment. In fact, it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. And if you did so, the punishment for having done so was death yourself. Whoever inflicted that punishment would be killed. 
Now, isn't this beautiful? It just so happens that Paul was born a Roman citizen. It's not because of where he was born. In fact, uh, many scholars think that his father must have been granted Roman citizenship because of something that he did along the way, and then his children who were born also had the privilege of being Roman citizens. It wasn't because he was from Tarsus. But we know he had both a Jewish and a Roman name, right? He's Saul to the Jews and Paul to the Romans. And, and he did this before in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, after he was beaten and jailed, he, he waves his Roman citizenship card and they kind of freak out because they inflicted punishment unnecessarily. But I, I think this is so beautiful, okay? Um, Roman citizenship had its benefits for sure, but there was no way to know how invaluable Roman citizenship would have been to Paul on this day. Like how amazing of God to put in Paul's back pocket, so to speak, the one and only thing that would literally save his skin on this day at this moment to advance God's mission. It's incredible. And this is the beauty of God's providence. That there are people, there are circumstances, there are events that happen in our lives that seem insignificant or just normal and ordinary and everyday, but at a moment in time, we get clarity that God has given us that, he's, he's blessed us in that way, he's, he's provided that for that specific occasion. And it should be mind-blowing that God would, would love us and care for us to such a degree that he would bring that into our lives. Where have you seen the hand of God the invisible, gracious, loving hand of God in your life, protecting you, providing for you along the way that in the moment you didn't realize, but when you look back on it, you're like, oh, that was the Lord. It's incredible. I'll give you one more brief example. Um, this summer, uh, a, a team of us will be headed back to Tanzania for the first time since COVID. So we're really excited uh, about being able to go back. And if you don't know, we, we partner uh, with Compassion International in Tanzania um, by the way, there's about 65 kids who need to be sponsored. So if you want to sponsor a compassion kid, let me know. Um, we have two centers there. We, uh, we work with church planters and pastors. We work with um, economic development, uh, Christian training for business and entrepreneurship, agriculture. I mean, there's a ton of stuff going on. But none of that was going on the first time we went to Tanzania. We went there. We had sponsored some kids, and we wanted to see our center. But God uh, just started to burden a few people's hearts for wanting to go to Tanzania and see what God was up to there. And so uh, four of us went on that first trip to Tanzania. And uh, one of the men who went on that trip uh, was, um, uh, was David Lindrum, who's our deacon of missions now. And David would say that on that first trip, he did not know why he was going. He just had this gnawing sense that he needed to go, and he, he couldn't explain why. And so the entire time, we're like, he's like, I don't know why I'm here, but let's go, right? And so we go to Tanzania. It's a long, long way. Uh, it's like two or three days to get there. And we're sitting in this little taxi. This, they call it a bujaji. It's this little, like, motorcycle taxi thing that they're everywhere. Uh, and so we're sitting, and we're sitting with this pastor, and, uh, and David has been peppering people with questions along the way. And he says to this pastor, hey, what do you guys need here? And pastor, the pastor says, um, we need business training. And see, the thing is, David is in the business of training. <laughs> he's a businessman who, who specializes in education and training. And so he's like, this is why I'm here. 
right? And I can't even begin to explain to you the, the number of doors that have opened that have led to uh, being able to do biblical uh, entrepreneurship training, uh, help with microfinance, like all these things. And now it's empowered by Tanzanians in Tanzania, but none of that stuff was happening before that moment. And so it's incredible, right, that God would arrange those things in such a way that in that little taxi, that conversation would happen that would lead to what God is up to now. Where have you seen God, God's hand uh, at work in your life? Even in small ways, right? We're not all going to have these big, humongous stories of like, you know, uh, what God's up to, but he's, I, I said this a couple weeks ago, God is always doing a million little things in our lives, and if we just have eyes to see, we, we'll notice, right, the providence of God at work. Okay, you guys with me? Okay, let's look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. So they're about to examine him. This says, uh, verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, this is the tribune, unbound him. So we waited a whole day to unbind him. Should have done it immediately. He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth and Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewash wall. It does end in an exclamation point. I assume that's how he said it. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and, and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees uh, party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take, them, uh, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, my second point here, if you're a note taker, is the words of God. So we had the hand of God, and now we see the words of God. Now, um, I want to just back up and explain this a little bit. Rather than take Paul directly to the next highest Roman authority, which is what the tribune should have done, he decides that he wants to get to the bottom of this issue with the Jews, and so he takes them before the Jewish authorities which would be the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. You can pronounce it either way. Now, we've seen them multiple times. Uh, Peter stood before the Sanhedrin as well. They are the ruling Jewish authority. Now, there's two kinds of Sanhedrin. The full Sanhedrin was 70 elders plus the high priest, so 71 people. There was another thing called the lesser Sanhedrin, which was made up of 23, so 22 elders plus the high priest. This is my opinion, but I think this is probably the lesser Sanhedrin because... 
There's some indications in the text, for instance, that Paul perceived that there were both Pharisees and Sadducees. He would have known that plainly if it was the full council. Um, This is an impromptu, non-official, informal meeting that scholars believe actually happened at the Roman headquarters, not at the the Sanhedrin's sort of home base. Um, And so, at any rate... Paul is brought before these people. I'm going to assume it's the lesser Sanhedrin. There's, there's 23 of them, and he comes before them, and he addresses them. But he, the standard way of addressing the Sanhedrin is to say, uh, Peter did this in Acts chapter 4. He said it this way. He said, um, rulers of the people and elders. This was the formal, respectful address to the Sanhedrin. Rulers of the people and elders. But Paul, he addresses them, and what does he say? Brothers. Why the difference? It's, it is perceived, it is, it is some would suggest, and I, I kind of tend to believe this, that Paul, before he was Paul, when he was Saul, likely served on the Sanhedrin. We'll see in Acts chapter 26 in a few weeks that he even says at one point, I cast my vote against them. Okay? Um, he was largely a contemporary to Jesus. So he was born uh, within a few years of Jesus. Uh, of course, he was born in, in Tarsus, but he ended up in Jerusalem under the teaching of Gamaliel, who has already been mentioned in the book of Acts, who was part of this Sanhedrin. So Paul is looking around at potentially classmates of his. Okay? He knows some of these guys. He's had relationship with them. He has served with them before. And so he comes before them and he says, brothers, in other words, you know me. We have some relationship. And then he says, I have lived before God in all good conscience. And at that that statement, the high priest has him struck in the mouth. And he he claps back immediately, right? You whitewashed tomb, which which is words that Jesus used towards religious people, right? In other words, so when people would be buried in a tomb, it was hewn out of rock, of course, they would paint it uh, whitewash it with white paint so that it looked more attractive uh, and, and was, you know, sort of distinguishable, and yet it was full of rotting bones, okay? So this is, this is Paul's accusation towards them because they are breaking the Jewish law by striking him. Uh, I actually just read this uh, last week in my reading plan in Leviticus 19 that says that no injustice shall be done in a formal trial like this. And he's never been charged, he's not been, you know, convicted, and yet they're striking him, they're causing injustice. So he calls him out on it. Which is interesting, okay? Because you look at this and you're like, this doesn't, this feels out of character for Paul, doesn't it? You know, he's the one who's like, um, that riot a couple weeks ago, he's like, hey, can I say something? You know, he's just very gentle and quiet a lot of the time. And yet here he claps back immediately and with some pretty strong words. But I love that it's in here because it shows us Paul's humanity. Like all of us have a breaking point, you know? Even the most gentle among us have snapped at our kids at some point, right? Or at our spouse or significant other. I mean, we just, there's a breaking point for all of us. And I appreciate that Paul's humanity is on display here. Um, now, here's, here's why the high priest had him struck. It would have been infuriating to hear Paul say that he lived with a good conscience before God because they considered Paul to be a blasphemer, They considered Jesus a blasphemer. And for this man to say that he followed Jesus and that Jesus was the promised Messiah was blasphemy. How can you say you live with a good conscience before God when you're blaspheming him? But secondly, it would have been really 
unrealistic or unknown to any Jew at this time that anyone could live with a clear conscience. Because the sacrifices that they had to bring were regular. Uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that the work of sacrifice was never done. The high priest was always standing in the temple. There was not a chair because there was always sacrifice to be done because the sacrifices that were made would cover over the sins for a period and then they have to be sacrificed again. But when Jesus came, he made a once, one time for all sacrifice and Jesus sat down, meaning the work was finished, right? So some of you who kind of grew up Catholic or in some very legalistic traditions live with, you know, they call it Catholic guilt, right? Or, or you, you, there's just this gnawing sense that you're never quite right with God because of the tradition that you grew up in and there's always stuff to do and boxes to check off and that kind of thing. So you understand that sense of not having a good conscience before God. But see, Paul knew that when Jesus hung on the cross, he declared, it is finished. The work is done. The payment is made in full, past, present, and future. No future sacrifice is necessary because Jesus paid it all. Jesus had spoken those words and Paul knew that he was forgiven and free and he could live from that point forward in surrender to Christ with a clean, good conscience before God. I wonder about you this morning. Some of you might have come in here with a really heavy conscience. With this knowing sense that you're not right with God. With shame. With guilt. With burdens that are too heavy for you to bear. And Jesus is calling you this morning to surrender to him. And to give him all of that baggage and all of that weight to cast off all those things that encumber you and to be free in Christ. To have your conscience cleared because you are trusting in the one who paid for all of your sins. So Paul is rebuked. He makes an apology. Some would say it's because the high priest was not acting very high priestly and he was being a little bit sarcastic to him. I don't tend to believe that. Some would say uh, it's because Paul had an eye condition and so he, he couldn't make out that this was the high priest. Um, I, I would vote this direction. Paul's been away from Jerusalem for nigh on 20 years now. And the high priest who was the high priest when, when Paul was there is no longer the high priest, it's a new guy. And because he's been away from Jerusalem, he's not keeping up with who the high priest is now, okay? Just to give you an example of this, um, the lieutenant governor of North Carolina is the second in command of the whole state, and I would be shocked if there were more than five of you who could name who it is in this room, okay? We don't know. His name's Mark Robinson, by the way, okay? And you're like, oh, I've heard of that guy, right? So, but we live here, <laughs> right? Paul's been away for 20 years. He doesn't know who the high priest is. And so when this guy gives a command, he's like, what are you doing, bro? Oh, you're the high priest. Sorry. Okay, he gets it. Now, it just so happens that Paul's a Pharisee. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were two of, uh, you could sort of consider them the more conservative and the more liberal of the religious parties of the day. Um, the, the Sadducees only believed in the, five, the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in any other scripture. Uh, they did not believe in the supernatural. So angels, spirits, none of that, okay? Resurrection, nope. Only the first five books of Moses. The Pharisees believed in all of that stuff. And so Paul 
perceiving, probably by what was being said in the room, understood that there were both Sadducees and Pharisees in the room. Now, again, he would have known that if it was the full council because he probably sat on the council. But this is a hodgepodge makeup of people. And he's like, ah, okay, there's both parties in the room. And so he makes this comment, hey, guys, I know what this is really about. This is really about the hope and the resurrection of the dead, which is true, okay? They were against Paul because he was preaching that Christ had been raised from the dead, that he was still alive, that he was ruling and reigning, that he was the promised Messiah, and they hated him for it, but for different reasons. So he realizes that a house divided cannot stand, and this trial is going nowhere, They're already on their second riot, and nothing has happened. And so he goes, hey, this is really about the hope and the resurrection. Now, for Paul, he understood that the hope that the Pharisees had in the resurrection was fulfilled in Christ, being raised from the dead. They did not quite get that. But they were on his side because he was a Pharisee like them. So when they hear he's a Pharisee, they're like, oh, he's our guy, right? And in a strange turn of events, the Pharisees end up defending Paul. Now, five minutes ago, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted Paul dead, And now the Pharisees are like, well, let's hold on a minute here. (laughs) Let's hear the boy out. Maybe he did hear from a spirit or something. And they end up defending him, which causes this huge contention within uh, this group of the Sanhedrin. And so there's another riot. Now we're on our third riot. And so they have to pull Paul out of this in order uh, for them not to kill him. And here's what I want to really focus in on. I'm, I'm, I'm short for time here, but look back at verse 11 with me. This is so important. Jesus appears to Paul and he speaks to him. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is phenomenal. There are uh, a few occasions on which the Lord spoke to or appeared to Paul. One is at his conversion. Uh, One is when he's in Macedonia and he gets a vision, right? And the Lord says, there are many people in this city who are my people, Acts 18. Uh, Okay, so Jesus speaking. These are red letters in my Bible. These are Jesus' words. And he says to him, take courage or take heart. That's another way to translate it. It's the same word. Why would he tell Paul to take courage? because he was discouraged. It's pretty simple. Paul was at a low point uh, in this this journey. Um, He knew, if you go back to the uh, the other sections of Acts, he knew that pain awaited him when he went to Jerusalem, but he did not anticipate this. The temple thing blew up in his face, He got arrested. There's no way for him now to get to Rome, which is where he feels compelled to go by God. And so you have to imagine that doubt and confusion were flooding Paul's heart and mind at this time. And he maybe he was thinking to himself, God, maybe all my friends were right. I shouldn't have come here. This is going really badly. And it's in that moment of doubt and and depression. And, uh, and, and the lowness that he is feeling that Jesus speaks to him and says, hey, take heart. Now, this is a common phrase of Jesus, right? Um, there's a paralytic in the scriptures who's carried to Jesus on a mat. 
And Jesus says to him, take heart, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, a little later on, there's a woman with a blood disorder. She's been, had a bleeding issue for 12 years. She's been to every doctor, tried every treatment possible. She's at her wit's end. She thinks, if I can just get to Jesus and touch the hem of his robe, maybe I'll be healed. And he speaks to her and he says, take courage, take heart. The disciples are in a boat and there's a storm and they are freaking out. They're going to die. They're going to lose everything. And, and um, Jesus comes walking up to them. <laughs> and he says to his disciples, take heart, take courage. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus. He's been blind from birth. And he hears that Jesus might be walking by on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so he cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus speaks to Bartimaeus and says, take heart, take courage, and he heals him. Jesus speaks to us in John chapter 16. And he says this, in this world, you will face tribulation. But what? Take heart, take courage, for I have overcome the world. What does that mean? No matter how dark things get, in your life, Jesus has overcome the world. He is with you. He is for you. He will not give up on you. He will see you through. So Jesus speaks to him. He says, take heart. You have testified. What would that be like to hear from Jesus? Hey, you did it. You did it. Good job. Encouragement, right? You did it. You did what I called you to do. But then he also says, and you must testify for me in Rome which has an embedded promise. Paul, your mission is not finished yet. So I know it looks bleak. I know it looks like you're never getting to Rome, but I've got you. You're going to have to trust me here. Okay, I'm with you. I'm for you. I will empower you. I will make sure you get to Rome. Now, it's a hard journey getting to Rome. There's a shipwreck. There's a snake bite. There's a lot of stuff on the way, but he's going to get to Rome. So here's what I want you to hear from this. No matter, no matter where you find yourself today, no matter how bleak things look, no matter how discouraged you feel, no matter how hopeless your circumstance seems, God's words, God's promises are for you in Christ. They're for you. That he's with you, that he's for you. As we'll see in a few minutes, that he will never leave you or forsake you. He will see you through. All right, uh, last section. You guys still hanging with me? Last section. Look at verse uh, 12. I'm going to read this quick, and then we'll look at it briefly. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, along, uh, now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case more exactly. We are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister, where did he come from? <laughs> the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring you this young man. 
he has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and said, uh, said privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, he tells him what's happening. The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down. They're going to kill him, essentially, okay? Now, skip down to verse uh, 22. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul, so give him a horse to ride, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he wrote a letter to this effect. Now, we're not going to get to the letter today, so we're just going to stop there. I want you to see, lastly, the will of God. The will of God. The Jews have had enough of Paul, okay? And so they conspire with the Jewish authorities that they're going to kill him. Very reminiscent of the plot to execute Jesus. There are 40-plus men who make this vow which Jesus says never to make a vow, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But these men make a vow before God. They're going to fast until Paul's dead. So it's either them or him, and there's 40 plus of them and one of him. The odds are stacked against Paul, except Jesus. And so as they plot, it just so happens that Paul's nephew catches wind of the plan. I, I just love this. You're like, what? what Paul has a sister who has a son who's in, Ro- in Jerusalem at this time? Note to self, next time you're plotting an assassination, keep it to under 40. I think that would be good. <laughs> so word doesn't get out. The nephew brings this word to Paul. Paul's in Roman custody, but he's not like, you know, not like Philippi where he was like down in the dark dungeon. Uh, it's kind of house arrest. And so he's able to get to Paul. Paul goes to the centurion who kind of owes him one after that flogging faux pas. You know what I'm saying? Uh, And also he's a Roman citizen, so he's got some privileges. And they take this message to the tribune. Now, it also just so happens that Paul is in Roman custody, the only people who could properly protect Paul from being attacked. And so they end up being this protective envoy for him to carry him to Felix in Caesarea, they take off with 470 soldiers, which seems like a little overkill, right? Um, because from what we know of Paul, I said this before, he, he does not so much look like a superhero as much as like George Costanza. Not really a threat, okay? But it shows you how heightened the tensions were at this time. The Romans were so concerned of there being another riot, right? And something that was, they are going to surround Paul with almost 500 soldiers and escort him in the dark of the night, all the way to Caesarea, which is about 50 miles away. Tensions are high. So he sends this letter to uh, Felix. This is the tribune, okay? Uh, We'll look at his letter a little bit more next week, but um, suffice it to say, uh, it's a little bit of revisionist history. He's like, oh, I found this man who was being tortured, and I rescued him. And it's like, okay. Uh, Didn't quite happen that way. But he does advocate for Paul's innocence, And so Paul is sent to Caesarea where he's going to stay for more than two years in Roman custody before he makes his way to Rome. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Um, In in Acts chapter 5 and in Acts chapter 12, Peter gets arrested, thrown in jail, and uh, a ninja angel breaks him out in the dark of the night. Remember those those stories? Okay. In Philippi, Paul is arrested, thrown in jail, and in the dark of night, an earthquake, the jail breaks. The doors swing open. He's free, right? Which leads to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But not this time. 
Paul's going to remain in custody for over two years. He'll make his way to Rome, and eventually he's going to die a martyr. He likely will not be free again. There's some debate about whether he was freed for a short time then rearrested, but suffice it to say he's, he's pretty much a prisoner the rest of his life until he dies. And you think, well, that's the providence of God? Yeah. Because sometimes the Lord delivers you from your situation, but oftentimes he gives you strength to endure your situation. But in both cases, it is the sovereign, gracious, invisible hand of God that is at work bringing about his will for our ultimate good and his glory. Not always our circumstantial good, but our ultimate good in his glory. And I believe Paul understood this. I think he knew this quite well because uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, he's, he's under arrest when he writes the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And you never see Paul asking for release, asking for a change of circumstance, but for strength to endure it, for boldness to continue to preach the gospel, even though he's in chains, okay? Um, He'll often say things like, though I'm bound, I'm free. Paul was the freest person who walked the face of the earth, and he couldn't walk the face of the earth because he was bound in chains. How on earth is that possible? Because Paul knew that the one in whom he had found freedom had been bound for him. Jesus was arrested under false allegations. Jesus was unjustly beaten. Jesus endured a sham trial, a wrongful conviction. He was tortured. He was flogged, beaten, mocked, beard pulled from his face, crown of thorns shoved onto his head, punched in the face. Jesus was ultimately nailed to a Roman execution stake where he would die in shame as a convicted criminal. And Jesus could have at any moment called his heavenly host of angels, wiped out all those Roman knuckleheads and been free. And he stayed on the cross. Why? Jesus endured the judgment of God so that you and I could experience the mercy of God. It's just that simple. From the cross, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he endured the loneliness, the emptiness of separation from God so that you and I could rest on the promise, according to Hebrews, that God will never leave us and never forsake us. That the providential hand of God, by the will of God, and the word of God will carry us through any and every circumstance. He will bring about his purposes for your ultimate good and for his glory, which is why Paul later in his letter to the Romans, right, can, can give us this, this great treatise on, on this. I'll read this very briefly and then we're done. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not Also with him graciously give us all things. That's not a prosperity gospel verse. It just isn't. Who shall bring any charge 
against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Some would say, well, the Romans. He says, no, no, no. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knowing what Paul endured, knowing the suffering, the pain, the trial that he went through, the dark moments of his life, and then hearing him write these verses gives them so much more depth and meaning, don't they? Okay, so as we wrap up, I got three questions I just want to throw up on the screen really briefly, and then we'll move into our time of response. The first question I think will be up on the screen potentially, Robbie. One second. I can read it for us, if not. Um, get my little password here. I'll just, oh, here we go. Where have I experienced the providential hand of God in my life? So this is going to take some introspection, some thinking back. Not all of us are good at thinking back. Um, but I would love for you to spend some time just thinking about where have I seen God's hand when I look back on my life, at the moment, this thing didn't seem important or relevant or whatever, but actually it ended up being pretty significant, right? A friendship, a relationship, a, a skill, a gift, uh, a, a circumstance, a relocation, you know? I mean, there's all kinds of things. Where have I seen and experienced the providential hand of God in my life? And those things, even uh, good things and bad things, that lead to other things that are more fruitful or better for me in the long run. Um, I think those things encourage us. When we hit dark times again, we can look back on how God brought us through and trust him even more. Secondly, when have God's words brought me comfort and clarity in times of trial or confusion? So Jesus speaks to Paul. God speaks to us through his word primarily. So we have his word. Where have God's words to us through his scripture brought me comfort and clarity in times of trial and confusion. When I don't know which way is up, when it's real dark, I have God's words to me. What specific words has he spoken to you, right? What, where have, what verses have leapt off the page into your heart in those times of trial and confusion? And then third, how do the promises of God secured for me by Christ encourage me to entrust myself more fully to the will of God? So God has made me promises. Those promises are yes and amen in Christ. Again, he'll never leave or forsake us. He's with us. He's for us, right? His spirit dwells within us. All those promises are ours in Christ. How do those promises encourage us to trust him? To entrust ourselves to God's will, to say as Jesus did, your will be done, not mine. Whatever comes, Whatever highs or lows, your will be done, not mine. All right, I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen for you for a few minutes. Um, I, I want to give you space and time as we're preparing for communion just to sit, to contemplate, to pray, 
And so the band might come up, they're just, if they play, they'll play just sort of softly and, and, and without words for a few minutes, but I want to give you just a, a minute or two of just calm and quiet. Um, there's so much noise in our lives, we don't often sit in stillness and silence, do we? And yet it's in the still small voice that God speaks, and so I, I want to give us just some space for quiet, for you to listen to the Lord, to reflect on these questions, to prepare your heart for communion. Communion is not just a thing we do on Sundays, right? It is, it is a rehearsal of the gospel. It is Jesus' life given so that we might have life. Now, we're not, we're not re-crucifying Christ. We're not re-enacting, but it's, it's a rehearsal. We are remembering. We are reminding ourselves that Jesus gave his life for us to give us life, that the perfect one, endured the wrath of God so that our sins could be forgiven. And so we come in remembrance, we come in celebration, we come with hearts prepared to worship him. Um, If you're not a believer, you can just stay seated. If you're not in a place where you feel like you can take it, that's fine. This isn't obligatory. Um, But I want to give you space. So when you're ready, I'll give you a couple minutes. You can make your way down. Uh, There's uh, wafers, and then they're uh, they're gluten-free, and there's wine and juice. So you remember the the body of Christ that was broken for you to make you whole. You remember the blood of Christ that was spilled for you to wash away your sins. And you come in thanksgiving and in remembrance of what Christ has done for you. Uh, So you make your way back to your seat. There's uh, black boxes. If you're a a giver, you can give uh, your financial offering. If you are new with us and want to be known, there's a connect card in your seat. You can fill that out. Uh, The other side's are prayer requests. So for any of you, if there's a way we can pray for you and lift you before the Lord, we'd love to do that. You fill it out, put it in those giving boxes as well. Uh, And then in a few minutes, the the band will come back up and we'll finish with two songs and then I'll come up with some announcements and a benediction. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray that it has been beneficial to your people. Uh, Help us, Lord, to remember uh, and to entrust ourselves to your gracious, sovereign, invisible hand, uh, a loving and gracious hand that leads us and that accomplishes your purposes in our lives and in this world. Um, Help us to, to, to be faithful to you in that to trust Christ always and whatever comes, uh, to know your goodness, to know your faithfulness, um, and to endure those things, both good and bad, uh, for your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. By the power of the Spirit, we ask this. Amen.